Thanks for listening to the Toronto Legends Podcast. I'm your host, Andrew Applebaum. My guest today is Denise Donlin. Starting on the new music and then as a VJ at Much Music, Denise moved to the other side of the camera, rising to become the boss at Much Music and launching sister station Much More Music before moving on to become president of Sony Music Canada and then on to become the head of CBC Radio. Denise is a member of the Canadian Broadcast Hall of Fame was recognized at the 2018 Juno Awards for her contributions to the Canadian music industry and is a member of the Order of Canada. Her autobiography, Fearless as Possible, Under the Circumstances, covers much of her impressive career, so let's jump right in. Welcome, Denise, to Toronto Legends. Thank you for joining me. Where are you and how are you? Hi, Andrew. It's a delight to join you. I'm in Toronto in the in the East End, and uh, I'm fantastic. It's a, it's a great day. It's early in the morning. Nothing's gone wrong yet. I can see the fall colors. All is well in the world. Well, actually, all is really not well in the world, but it's uh, it's well in my little corner of it. Now, you were in attendance at the recent Roy Thompson Hall Red Carpet Gala and premiere of the Much Music documentary, 299 Queen Street West. How great was it to get the gang back together? <laughs> well, I was just a member of the gang, actually. Sean Menard, who was the director and producer of the uh, of the movie, got everybody together. It was a gaff to see everyone, you know, and it was a, a real trip down memory lane, that's for sure. So, yeah, seeing pictures, uh, footage of ourselves when we were, you know, babies compared to what we are now was really... I could never watch myself on television, ever, ever. I would always, you know, do anything to avoid it. Clean the fridge. I had to clean his fridge. Um, so actually being in the theater and sitting there and watching yourself on that massive screen, uh, was something anyway, it was a, it was a little, it was a little lesson in humility, I think, but it was great. It was lots of fun. Anyone who was a much music fan will really love it. And what'd you think of the doc and, and the way that director Sean Menard put it all together? Well, I think that, I mean, it's very hard to, to grab 20 years of, a of much music when we were broadcasting 24 hours a day, seven days a week. So he made some uh, very entertaining choices, you know, and obviously some things are going to get left on the cutting room floor, but it's really entertaining. He does a great job pulling stuff together. It was, for me, I mean, not my movie, not my edit, um, but what I would have liked, um, because he was making a lot of, um, you know, comparisons between MTV and Much Music and the difference therein, and they were very, very different channels with different approaches. So for me, you know, what I was proud of all of those years was doing all this social justice programming, you know, media literacy, the HIV AIDS campaigns, the, you know, too much for much, you know, putting videos on the air and exploring, you know, what uh, was actually going on with them. So I was really proud of that time, and I wish there had been more of that in it. And based on your experience you had at the premiere, would you concur that the spirit of much music remains uh, very much alive today? Well, I really do think it does. I mean, people, you know, much music was a uh, it was a crazy time, right? It was a place where anything could happen and usually did. And, you know, I came from the West Coast uh, to host Rock Flash, coming up with news on the hour every hour, 
with my big lightning bolt introduction of news. I mean, there was no internet back then. Oh my God, I'm dating myself. But literally had to get off the air and jump on the phone and try and find anything to say in the next hour. While, you know, tech guys are walking across your desk and knocking your coffee over and trying to set up for the next thing. And somebody's screaming down the hall and some rock star is having a, a meltdown. I mean, it was <laughs> crazy town. But I think that's partly what the audience liked, right? They liked to watch what could happen. Our favorite saying all the time was, if there was a technical difficulty, we'd say, coming out of black in three, two, one, and we'd be back on the air. But the whole idea of, you know, breaking that wall down and inviting the audience in, you know, to debate with us and to celebrate with us and, you know, those Much Music Video Awards where we were closing down four streets for date. We were the worst neighbors, and people would say, well, what was your favorite show? Part of the uh, the MMVs, was it David Bowie? Was it, you know, the Red Hot Chili Peppers? I was like, no, the fact that, you know, the show's over and no one died. It was great. That was considered a success. <laughs> oh, dear. Now, that doc is now on a 12-city Canadian tour. Denise, will you be part of that ongoing tour at all? No, no, I saw it at the, at the I, I wish them luck and off they go. And then it'll be in Cray, uh, on Crave in December. Excellent. Yeah. Well, let's please go all the way back, get the Denise Donlin story. Where were you born? And, and please describe your upbringing. I was born in Scarberia, uh, Scarborough, Ontario, just outside Toronto. Father was a police officer, soon to be detective sergeant on the homicide and holdup squad, and then the emergency task force. Um, my mom was working two jobs and raising four kids. We grew up, you know, as feral children, really, me and my three brothers running around in the fields. Uh, you know, that part of Scarborough was very, uh, was really wild. It was fields and horses and, and that sort of thing. So I got my first job at eight years old delivering, you know, weekly newspapers and then went to work in a restaurant where I learned a lot about people. I mean, for us, it was about, you know, putting in the time, putting in the work, contributing to the family, um, you know, when we had the wherewithal. And it was uh, it was great upbringing. I, I it was it taught me a lot. That's for sure. Resilience certainly one of them. <laughs> certainly it is. Yeah, you went off to the University of Waterloo doing environmental studies, a very practical degree for a media and broadcasting career. <laughs> yeah, joint major in biochemistry. Yeah, very handy when it comes to the the rock and roll world. You know, I really loved university. I loved meeting new people. I loved you know the mind expansion piece of it. Uh, but I started doing a radio show on CKW, the, the the local student radio, and I really loved it. I was a big folky at the time, you know, doing my, my worst John Prine, Joni Mitchell impersonations in the grad club, Ugh! and quickly realized that I'd be better, you know, behind the camera uh, working with, uh, with artists rather than being one myself. So... I started booking the entertainment at the University of Waterloo, and then I did that for a number of years until I moved out west to work with Feldman and Associates in my own publicity company, working with bands like Doug and the Slugs and the Headpins, and and uh, you know going on tours across the country with Quit Kiss and Quiet Riot, and then off to Europe with White Snake on the 1984 Slided In Tour of Europe. So yeah, cutting my uh, cutting my little rock and roll teeth. 
well, somewhat shockingly, despite a tour name that has not aged well, that being, of course, the 1984 slided in tour of Europe with Whitesnake, <laughs> you've described, however, that tour as a professional rock tour, i.e. Yeah. you were more likely backstage to encounter briefcases rather than piles of bras. Yeah, it was. I mean, I'm sure there was hijinks going on for sure. But, you know, I was contrasting our experience from North America into the UK. And David Coverdale, who is a lovely gentleman, he looked took a look at the opening act, which was the Headpins, and I was working for Headpins. And everybody sort of stood backstage and watched the first night. And then the next night, it was, okay, you know, off you go then. They gave us access to everything, right? Their, their lights, they even threw, threw some pyro in on occasion. Not that they'd let us know. Sometimes the guitar player was leaping around because the bomb would go off just randomly. And I asked David why, because the other acts that we'd been touring with, when they saw how good the band was, they would inevitably hit the F button and uh, and mess with the sound and lights um, because they didn't want to be upstaged. But David just said, you know, the punters paid their money. Let's give them the best show possible. And it was it was a fantastic tour. I really, really enjoyed it. Learned a lot. Now, White Snake and David Coverdale, very professional, but you also had experiences touring with Kiss and Quiet Riot that may not have been as professional. Now, before you ruin my perception of them, Denise, I have to tell you that I think I think Gene Simmons and Paul Stanley are truly great businessmen. And I have had Quiet Riot's Rudy Sarzo on this very podcast. In addition to being a really nice guy, he today literally studies quantum physics as a hobby. I'm not surprised. But go ahead and tell me about touring with Kiss and, and Quiet Riot. Well, Chris, we did. We went across the. We went across Canada. I mean, it was it was fun. It was, but it was a Kiss tour. Like you know, we just had to go on stage and and hopefully not, you know, meet some horrible disaster. Quiet Riot was was more difficult because the tour sort of self destructed halfway down. We went down the the eastern seaboard. And then um, the drummer had an altercation backstage with Kevin, the lead singer, and there was uh, it was a real Donnybrook, and Kevin wasn't able to perform anymore, so the can- the tour got canceled, and so we were left, you know, just without a tour. And our um, agent manager Sam Feldman, madly trying to book us some gigs just to get us across uh, the U.S. so that we could meet up with White Snake in Europe. So. It was, um, yeah, not not my favorite experiences. But sounds you know, very rock and roll. Well, a band that that's not on stage and not working and has too much time off is um, is trouble. <laughs> so let's just put it that way. Now, Denise, at this time, as you mentioned, you were based out of Vancouver, where you were working with Doug and the Slugs, Headpins, and Trooper. You helped out locally, as you noted, with Rock Flash News. And when Jeannie Becker was leaving Rock Flash to work on fashion television. You suddenly had the opportunity to work as a host and producer on the new music. Was this a difficult decision or a, a no-brainer to move back across the country to Toronto? Well, it's an interesting question, Andrew, because it was uh, both. It was a new no-brainer on one hand because my parents were uh, struggling and um, I needed to be closer to them. Also, you know, my time in Vancouver wasn't really that good for my health. It was, <laughs> it was Vancouver was you know, taking off, Loverboy and uh, Adams was just starting and lots of rock and roll bands. 
And it was a lifestyle that, you know, just wasn't good for me. And so I came across, I came back, but actually going on the air at Much Music, the last thing I expected was to be an on-air personality. I mean, I was six foot one. I had a, a lisp that reappears when I'm nervous, like right now. And, you know, big rock hair. And I was, I was gangly. I was a little bit too old and never done it before. And it's not like Much Music had a training camp for anybody. They just, John just said, yeah, just go on the air, figure it out. And uh, or the first time I went, took a camera to try to do an interview, I said, well, what do I do? He goes, just shoot the shit out of it. And I was like, okay. And I remember coming home and showing the interview. It was with, I think it was Burton from the Guess Who. And I showed the interview to Daniel Richler, who was the producer on the new music at the time. And he said, where's the re-asks? And I said, well, what's a re-ask? <laughs> if you're only doing a one camera shoot, it means you turn the camera after the interview's over. You turn the camera back on the interviewer who has to try and remember all of the questions they asked in the way they asked them. And then look very interested or very amused. <laughs> so a lot of acting on the re-asks. And uh, I learned how to do them eventually. But um, yeah, so it was trial by fire, trial by the seat of your pants. But it was certainly an environment that oof, was just so exciting to be in. Now, you were 28 years old when you joined Much Music, of course, young by any reasonable definition. But relative <laughs> to everyone else, you yeah. described yourself as feeling like the old spinster of the group. Uh, I was the old lady of the group. Yeah, well, on the on the on air part for sure. Um, but also, I'd come from you know booking concerts. I knew a lot of people in the industry, and you know the tours, notwithstanding, and the artists that I worked with. So they never wanted to hire somebody who was so was just you know a talking head. John Martin was very interested in bringing some people who actually had a lived experience. So. You know, putting me in that rock flash, you know, slash news journalism the chair uh, was really something that I could do because I had a, I had my Rolodex in the old days it was pretty dense, so I knew how to contact people and get how to get in touch. And at that point, you know, had a pretty good reputation, and so people would actually return my calls, which is great. <laughs> the philosophy at Much Music at that time was very much one of make it up as we go along. Was that yeah. a kind of philosophy that, 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 that set well with you? It was, actually, because we were all learning, um, you know. And the great thing about Much was that you could, you know, you could, if you wanted to learn how to be a camera operator, pick the camera up and off you go. It wasn't a unionized environment in those days. So I used to watch, you know, Janie Roberts, now John Roberts, Fox News. And he would, first of all, he'd stand by the fax machine and wait for the, we had a thing called the Daily Double that would, just spit out like two pages of little news tidbits and whose birthday it was and whatever. And he'd stand by it and then grab it. And then he'd look down at it and he'd put JD beside stuff that he was going to use on his BJ shift. You know, it was kind of like the seagulls, mine, 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 it's mine. And we, of course, even though we were live on air for eight hours, didn't think that it you could ever repeat anything. Heaven help us, because the audience... They did watch it all the time, you know. Yeah, eight hours a day after school. I mean, it was it was amazing to think about it. The impact that that channel had on Canada, right? Culturally, is massive. And you know, we we programmed it to reflect the community we served. So 
it was a very multicultural station trying to have, you know, every people from the human rainbow. And I imagine, you know, little, you know, kids, teenagers in in Fort McMurray, maybe being the only uh, BIPOC person in his whole town, suddenly watching Prince um, on the air or Janet Jackson or, you know, a LGBTQ kid in, in Whitehorse suddenly seeing, uh, I don't know, Bo- Boy George, right? And that it was all good and it was all great. And that was the motto at the time. Uh, that was Moses's which was everyone's welcome, everyone belongs. And that's what I loved about the place was that you could, I mean, when I was given the role of director of music programming and then vice president, general manager, I could literally really do what I wanted. As long as the advertisers were coming in, you know, I could engage in all kinds of that social justice uh, stuff that we talked about earlier. And that's what made me want to get out of bed in the morning. Well, you certainly brought the excitement to the TV and you brought the excitement to Toronto your infamous Much Music Video Award parties, as you noted, Denise, would literally see the four streets outside the corner Queen and John shut down and taken over. The late David Bowie made a great comment about the whole aura of these events, if you'd like to share that. Oh, David. So I went backstage. It was it was a great, it was 10th anniversary, I think, of the MMVAs. And David was in his dressing room uh, in the Bravo studio at the time, because Bravo was coming in there. And um, we were all running around trying to make sure everyone was going to be on stage at at the time. And it was all very weather dependent, too, because it was all outside. And it was also, you know, a little bit nerve wracking for the artist's crew because the audience were like right in front of them. Like this wasn't a staged crowd where people are vested and they come in. You just lined up and if you got a wristband, you're suddenly in the front row. So it was a bit hairy. It was very rock and roll. And I went backstage, uh, or backstage back to David's dressing room uh, to see what he needed and just go through a couple of uh, details with him. And uh, all went well. It was a good meeting. And as I was leaving, I overheard him say to one of his uh, handlers, he said, this place is chaos. It seems to be run by children. <laughs> laughing all the way out. Because uh, it was being run by children. We were all children. <laughs> now, in 1992, you became the director of music programming and much, and then the general manager or the big boss in 1997, responsible for all the programming. You also went on to successfully launch the sister station, Much More Music, in 1998. What was the impetus for introducing Much More Music? Well, the crazy part about Much Music was, at that time, videos have taken off to such a degree that we were getting 400 videos a week. And you could only really add into meaningful rotation. I mean, sure, you could play them all, but in order to actually help careers and to serve the audience who wanted to see, you know, their favorite videos all the time, as well as being introduced to new artists, you couldn't add them all. You you could add maybe five into what we called meaningful heavy rotation. Then lots of other videos went on to specialty shows like Rap City or The Power 30 or Clip Trip, for example. But we just couldn't deal with the number of videos. Plus, attitudinally, the challenge for much was that it was, I don't want to say aggressive, because we certainly weren't, you know, playing violent videos, but it was, it could be harsh, right? The images could be harsh. People were exploring, you know, the depths of humanity, as it were. 
And so a lot of the artists like, you know, Joni and Neil and my husband, Rory McLaughlin and Bruce Coburn or Jane Sibbery or Anne Murray, artists, you know, that had, you know, really paved the way for the Canadian uh, music industry we're no longer finding a home on that channel. We need, we there were too many videos. We absolutely needed another channel. It's like if you were living in your town, a big town or a little town, it didn't matter. If you only had one radio station, yeah, they would never be playing the music you wanted to hear when you wanted to hear it. So it took a while to get it up um, because we had to go and apply for a license and get CRTC approval, and then we had to get carriage by the. Um, the cable operators, Rogers, Shaw, etc. Uh, but we finally got it up. I think it's a food channel now, Andrew. I'm very, I'm, I'm a, just going to take a moment and weep. The only constant the, has changed, Denise. You know that. <laughs> now, you did a lot of interviewing of people for on-air jobs at Much Music and Much More Music. And mm-hmm. you would ask them why they wanted the job. What was the worst thing they could say that would immediately find them pushed toward the exit door? Because I want to be famous. Worst answer ever. However, I wouldn't kick them out right away. I'd say, okay, let's assume you are famous, which there's a lot of power that comes with that. What will you do with your fame once you have it? And if the person was generally unsuited, they would have a big, a hard time coming up with an answer to that. So I was really more interested in people who were curious, number one. I mean, because, you know, you can teach television. You can teach how to, you know, do an interview or present yourself well or speak extemporaneously or what a camera angle is and lighting. What you can't teach is curiosity, I found. And so I would tend to look for people who were engaged, who were curious, who, like George Strombolopoulos, for example. When George came into my office, a friend of mine had brought him in because he had a punk show on CFNY at the time, and and John John Marshall at the New Music, he said, you you got to meet this guy, George. I'm like, okay, I trust John, bring him in. And George was there with his leather jacket and his piercings and his, and his you know, his attitude because he was punker. But the more I talked to George, the more I wanted him. He... I said, why do you want to be a VJ? He said, well, I'm not sure I do. <laughs> I was like, okay, let's start there. But he was very, um, I, I describe him as like being like an onion. Like the more you take, you know, go through a layer, the more there is to discover. And, you know, George was just, and is still, I mean, he's still using his powers for good with the World Food Program and you know, he's he's got his show on Apple. He's done extremely well. And I still have great respect and, and love for George. He is just a, uh, he's a curious, big-hearted, wonderful uh, human. And it's great to have him on the air. What a rebel you were, Denise, because at the same time you were falling in love with the concept of George being on air for you, you got a memo from Moses Snymer saying, no more people with piercings, no more leather yeah, well, um, yeah. So, on-air personalities generally—I mean, I go through a massive box of demo tapes. You know, when I could bring myself to, I didn't watch them every day, but I waited till I had a few. And we were always looking for something specific, as I said, to you know, to fill out the human rainbow. 
but ultimately, yeah, once I found somebody that I thought was fantastic, I'd send them up to Moses and um, hopefully get his blessing. I'd already hired George before I sent him up to Moses, so that was, <laughs> uh, but it was all fine. Yep. It all it all worked out. All you know you were doing. Out. Yeah. Now, I would appreciate your thoughts or recollections of some former colleagues that have been past guests on this podcast. There's three of them in mind. Let's start with Christopher Ward, who, along with John or J.D. Roberts, were the first VJs we saw on air when Much Music launched on August 31st, 1984. Yeah, that was fantastic. I still remember it in my brain, that those cheesy graphics and, uh, you know, with those big cartoon hands with the globe and then poof, Much Music, and then J.D. Roberts and Christopher Ward burst through literally a piece of paper. <laughs> that was you you got a great memory, and, and Christopher Ward actually said he he started uh, running out of air back there buying that piece of paper. He was starting to get claustrophobic. Oh, my God. And then people, well, uh, the Rush video, people remember as the first video, but it was actually UB Blake uh, that John chose. It was a, a black performer from um, what they called Scopatones, one of the first videos, which were like, if you remember being in, you know, grade school and they were t the you know with the little film projectors that would roll the stuff well that's what it was so i thought it was a, a very bold choice and christopher i mean he first of all he's 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 a comedic delight christopher ward so not only is he a great songwriter with you know black velvet and and uh, etc but he he's very funny He's very willing to take chances. I mean, he brought Mike Myers in when he was, Mike was working on Wayne, becoming Wayne, and, you know, plunked him down at my rock flash desk at one point, which was pretty hilarious, because then I was trying to interview Wayne as Wayne when he was still working out his uh, his character. But Christopher was, was Cindy Lemons. I mean, that was really the essence of much music and what led to the, the channel's sort of attitudinal uh, bravado, really, was that if you had a crazy idea, let's just run with it and see what happens. It would be amazing to find that spirit anywhere now. And how about Rick Campanelli, still Rick. to this day known lovingly as The Temp? Rick The Temp. Well, Rick won, because after a while, all those boxes of demo tapes became a, a bigger story when marketing had the great idea of uh, putting on a contest where you could be a temp for a day. And so demo tapes came all across the planet. Luckily, the marketing team would look at them first and only bring me the good ones. Hallelujah. But yeah, Rick the Temp won the uh, the Rick the Temp contest. And then he was such a joy to have around, Rick. He was just such a keener. And uh, so we gave him a job as um, he was in charge of uh, the phones, really. He was a receptionist. And then I would encourage him to do another demo tape and another demo tape. And he, and but and sooner or later he was ready. And then on the air he went. And someone who recently launched a memoir of his own, Bill Wilichka. Ah, Bill. Well, Bill started off as an editor. This is is typically the story of many many of the people who you know rose to some higher echelon on air or even in management at Much Music. They usually started somewhere else and worked their way up. Bill Wilichka was an editor. I went on mat leave. He took over Outlaws and Heroes, which I was hosting at the time. 
And then I was offered the job as director of music programming. And Bill was doing such a great job on Air at Outlaws and Heroes, we just kept him on. And he, he was kind of like JD. He would he would know, because he was an editor, how to conduct his own interviews in a way that he knew what a shot looked like. He knew what, how to get B-roll. He knew how to do the re-asks, certainly. So he was, a, he was a total asset, and he worked really hard, and he's just one of the loveliest people. And still dominating the airwaves as he uh, hosts the uh, morning show in Kingston. He is. I just got his book. I'm halfway through. He said very nice things about me. Thanks, Bill. <laughs> Excellent. Now, Denise, you've been asked about it a million times, but it's really such a unique story, so I'm going to ask you to share it one more time. Pregnant, but still on the job because your doctor told you to keep busy. Your water broke while hosting a 90-minute intimate and interactive live event with the Cowboy Junkies at Much Music. Please share that very interesting experience. <laughs> well, how intimate do you want to get, Andrew? I can guide. Do you want the timing of the contractions? Um, but yeah, it was uh, Much Music. Uh, the Cowboy Junkies was the intimate and interactive. You know, only the softest, quietest band in the planet. Couldn't have been Metallica or anything. That show was live at 9 o'clock. It was quarter to 9. I walked into the building already, done my research, had my face professionally made up uh, because I was a whale. I was wearing this big black shroud. And I thought, what is that? Is that? What is that? And I went up to talk to Nancy Oliver because she was the only mother in the in the Much Music environment. And I said, I think my water just broke. And she said, well, how are you feeling? I said, yeah, pretty good. The doctor said to stay busy. And she said, do you think you can do the show? And I'm like, I think I can. There's no other people to do it. So we did the show. And about 20 minutes into live show, the contraction started. And they started big. They were noticeable. <laughs> so when you... I was started, I didn't have my watch on because my wrist was so huge that my watch band didn't fit it anymore. And they put me behind a piano to try and hide my girth, sitting there all pregnant behind the piano. Anyway, the contraction started, and the only way I knew how far apart I was was by the rundown. So the rundown would say, you know, a song, Black Eyed Man, 3 minutes 47. And it would say, you know, take a question one minute, then commercial break two minutes, bumper 15 seconds, blah, blah. So I was doing the, you know, introducing a song, the Cowboy Junkies would be playing. I would be timing my contractions. They'd finish the song and, I'm, and I'd be like, oh, for God's sakes, I'm about eight minutes apart. Makeup person would come over and say in a commercial break, sort of, to, to, she'd say, God, you're sweating. And I'd say, well, I'm in labor. And she'd be like, yeah, right. ha, ha, ha and walk away. <laughs> so, anyway, we finished the show, and my husband was in the audience, which is highly unusual. Murray and I have been married for 33 years, partly because I don't get involved in his stuff, and he doesn't you know, get involved in mine. It works really well. But we went to went home, uh, phoned the doctor. She said, does it feel like the contractions, do they feel like they have teeth? Was her th And I'm like, yeah. Anyway, got to the hospital, and Duncan arrived, you know, within two hours. So, yeah. And then John Martin came over with a bottle of scotch, and it was, you know, after midnight. And I remember looking down at this baby, 
And I, of course, had TV makeup on. So I'm pretty sure that all of my mascara was had rolled down my face. And Duncan was probably looking up at me thinking Tammy Faye Baker was his mother. <laughs> anyway, the next morning, you know, Cowboy Junkie sent a big... Uh, Big bouquet of flowers from the li- from the to the littlest cowboy junkies fan, and uh, and every time I see Margot now, she's like, "How old is Duncan?" I'm like, oh, 30. She's like, "Oh, it's <laughs> the way we mark how old we are." Well, you will anyway. not find a story as unique as that anywhere else for sure. <laughs> it was wild. Now, in 2000, you were headhunted and took over as president of Sony Music Canada. Denise, why'd you make this move? I'd been at the station then for about 16 years. I was a mom. The money was great, comparatively speaking. And I was really interested artistically because at Much Music, you know, the artists, they arrived fully formed. You know, they already had a video. They were signed. They had a marketing plan. They were ready to go, you know, aside from the, the independent artists. And I really thought, what would it be like to engage with artists from the ground up all the way through a career? That would be exciting. So uh, it, it took a lot of uh, soul searching, and I accepted. And it was a it was a tough transition because I joined Sony in the year two thousand, which was the exact moment that the illegal file sharing had begun. And so literally I walked in the door and the bottom fell out of the global industry. So all my dreams of finally flying business class instead of the back of the bus were dashed. <laughs> your your timing in hindsight was absolutely horrible. As you note, you became president of Sony Music Canada precisely at the moment the global recording industry began to implode. From this massive digital disruption, Napster was a huge disruptor. You had to play whack-a-mole with all these illegal streaming services that would pop up. In fact, you you actually ended up suing your customers, which in hindsight doesn't sound like such a great business strategy. (laughs) Well, it's not. Actually, Canada, the Canadian labels did not sue their customers. The Recording Industry Association of America did. Yeah, the industry was, um, like, it's very hard to compete with free, you know? And so, well, I don't even know where to start. For Canada, it was different, but the Recording Industry Association were were suing the uploaders, which meant that, you know, of course, the press had a whole pile of fun with, you know, a a 12-year-old who uploaded a copy of Happy Birthday and and it's a grandfather who had passed, I don't know, it was like it. In that net, there was all kinds of horror stories that were caught up. But yeah, the recording industry, I mean, on one hand, we were trying very hard to embrace the new digital universe. But at the same time, you had to protect your copyrights. You had to protect your artists. You had to protect the owners of um, of that music. So the music industry got a very bad reputation Suddenly, we were the evil, greedy, you know, uh, monsters who were keeping artists or keeping the audiences away from their music. I remember there was a um, a poll, some survey, I don't remember the source, but it listed what are the industries that you hate the most? And the music industry 
record companies was number one. T- tobacco companies were number two. So there, there's a number one to be proud of. But yeah, there were some real mil- missteps along the way because the major labels thought they could uh, legally sue their way out of it, and they couldn't. This was a genie that was out of the bottle and was not going back in. And so, uh, I mean, it took 20 years almost for the record industry to recover. And it was a devastating time because artists were dropped. Um, I had to lay off a third of my company at Sony. And, you know, the 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 whole thing really had to be reinvented. I mean, Apple, luckily, because the music industry tried to put their own entities together. I mean, Sony, I think, and Warner uh, partnered up and Universal partnered up with. But the, you couldn't get all the the record labels together in one room to create like an Apple because that would be um, monopolistic practices and, and you would run afoul of the antitrust legislation in America. So that didn't happen, even though there were some attempts at it. Um, but yeah, it was it was a rough, uh, rough time. It was interesting for me, though, because my boss in international, well, I reported internationally, he was like, you know, Canada, you re- R&D your head off because I'm like, I think we have some ideas up here. Which we did. You know, we worked with Celine and put the first um, artist website together with her blessing, of course, and she was a delight, her and Renee, to work with on that. She just started her residency in Vegas. Um, because Sony Canada, we had, wasn't just a label on the A&R side, we had manufacturing distribution. We made the product there, we distributed it there. So we were a, we could be a fulfillment house like overnight uh, for fan merch. So we did that, among other things. But yeah, it, that was a really rough time to be in the uh, business. Well, you had full, a lot of challenges at Sony Music Canada. You had, of course, to deal with the massive digital disruption. You then had to implement these transformational efficiencies, as you note. You had to mm-hmm. lay a lot of people off. And I guess the third challenge was you were the first female president of Sony Canada, and in fact, the only female leader of a country in the Sony international universe. What were these Sony Worldwide Executive Meetings like for you? Everyone kept telling you to lean in. <laughs> I'm like, God, Andrew. I was leaning in so far, my feet were off the ground. Yeah, we would have international meetings every six weeks, usually in London. And I was the only woman in the room who wasn't serving coffee. So there was, you know, the presidents of Latin America and Germany and France and Australia and all around a table, and we would be looking at new releases, we were looking at sales charts, we were looking at, you know, um, everything to do with the business, including how to get out of this uh, or digital challenge that was facing us. So yeah, it was a little weird, honestly, because I was new to the business. I I had I didn't never worked at a record company before, and most of these guys were, you know veterans, decades of uh, of experience in the industry. There were two women in the New York offices who were very powerful. One ran a label and one was um, Tommy Mottola's second in command. But, you know, there's no way I could ask them to mentor me. It would, you know, mentor would <laughs> have been like asking them to help me tie up my shoes. It was that kind of stuff just wouldn't have happened. I mean, there was a lot of guys, especially Rick Davis, my um, uh, my boss, was was fantastic. But yeah, it's difficult for women in many, many, 
male-dominated businesses, and it's still difficult. I mean, if if you look at the latest stats, you know, there's still only five or six percent of of Canadian TSX companies that are that are women CEOs. There's, you know, our numbers in politics are distressingly low. Twenty four percent of of board members in Canada are, are only women. It's not even. I mean, women are over fifty percent of the population, and so that tipping point where you have, you know, camaraderie, you can, there's mentorship. If, if you can, you know, you can't see it unless you, you can't be it unless you can see it kind of uh, aspect still isn't there. There's still a pay gap for God's sakes, Andrew. Um, and Canada's still making 89 cents of the dollar. And that's for white privileged women, um, for racialized women, that, that uh, number is just grievously lower than that. So there's a lot of work still to be done. But yeah, you got to, so you do have to, I mean, there was, I almost called my book Backwards and in High Heels because there's that old um, phrase, what it, Ginger Rogers did everything Fred Astaire could do, except she had to do it backwards and in high heels. It's true. We do have to jump, you know, higher and run faster and put in more time and, you know, at home and at work. It's, it's, it's a fact of life. Hopefully it'll take just maybe one more generation, please. But I suspect it's going to take more than that. Well, I got a 16-year-old daughter at home, so hopefully things will be a little easier from your trailblazing and the, the progression that's been made. Power on. Power, Power on. on, daughter. <laughs> if you're enjoying this Toronto Legends interview with Denise Donlin, please check out the more than 175 additional episodes available anytime. We've got Gord Martineau, Cheryl Hickey, Rick Campanelli, Bill Walichka, Zev Shalev, Wendy Mesley, Evan Solomon, and Ted Wallishan. How they did it directly from the Toronto legends themselves. All episodes available 24-7-365 wherever you get your podcasts. In the fall of 2008, Denise, you became executive director of CBC Radio's English Language Services. You've noted that this move to our national broadcaster allows you to work for the public good rather than the for-profit good. What do you mean by that? Well, it's, you know, it's interesting because I think when I look back at a Much Music Days, you know, all the work we were doing around media literacy and uh, HIV AIDS and Pride Day and, you know, equality and uh, anti-violence, anti-racism, it's not what you'd expect from a broadcaster that really its number one guiding goal is to make money. And yet we did make money. That those attitude that that programming was good for advertisers, good for the audience, and you know we we did really well by it. But when getting to uh, CBC, you know CBC is a public broadcaster, so they operate in the public good. And you know I think that's more important today than ever before, particularly when you know we talk about you know fake facts. <laughs> and, you know, if you look at Murdoch, for example, Fox News, I mean, they are in many ways in control of the zeitgeist in America. I mean, a lot of the awful stuff that's happening out there is because the audience believes without journalistic balance, without really looking for different sources without, you know, checking facts for heaven's sakes. And so it that kind of attitude 
And that kind of force um, is the kind of stuff that undermines democracy. So for me, working to CBC at CBC Radio, where you know the broadcast standards of journalism are uh, sacrosanct, uh, you know, you act in the public good. You are serving the public, not the profit. And there's a difference in that. And so, you know, the you think you can, you can trust the reporting. And public broadcasters around the world, I think they're more needed now than ever before. Well, certainly is the debate that's going on now, as you know, continues to talk about the value of the CBC and how we're going to value that. Mm-hmm. Now, Denise, you eventually got restructured out of your job at CBC. You were not happy about it, but you learned your anger was not serving you well. And I guess you needed an attitude readjustment. <laughs> Yeah, that was, I mean, it was, that was a difficult time. We, we'd just gone through a difficult time at CBC. We faced a $171 million shortfall. We managed to save every single little radio station, 33 English and some French radio stations across the country. So, and we were still number one, right? CBC Radio was still the number one um, station in most of the major cities across the country and a lot of the minor ones where there is no business case for the privates to even uh, run news and information. So yeah, I was asked to put my hat in to be the new president of CBC Radio and Television. And because of what we just gone through, because radio on that side is non-commercial, and because we were still the CBC was still facing monetary challenges, funding challenges, I decided not to, and thinking I could just continue being a force for radio. And they hired someone else, and um, she wanted to restructure, and so she did. And so I was out. It was uh, shocking. (laughs) But, uh, but yeah, it's, you know, it's also, I mean, a lot of people, you, you, especially in this day and age, you don't go into jobs expecting to be there for 50 years and get a gold watch, and, and then off you go. So people do have to reinvent. And in many ways for me, I mean, I've done a lot of public speaking lately. I work for six nonprofits, which was difficult. Uh, So it's a lot of work, but you are using your powers for good. You're bringing your executive experience. You're bringing your, you know, your life experience to environmental organizations, for artistic organizations, for organizations like uh, World Truck. War Child Canada, for example, that helps women and girls in in the most fraught post-conflict war zones uh, in the planet. And so I get a lot of satisfaction out of that because using making a contribution is really important. Well, it's very good that you are open to reinventing yourself, as you say. And one interesting move you made in the fall of 2013, you rejoined your old colleague Moses Snymer in his Zoomer empire to co-host the TV program The Zoomer except that nobody informed you of who exactly was going to serve as your co-host. <laughs> that was funny. Yeah, Moses wanted, he sent me a paragraph about this new show he wanted to do where it would be, you know, thinkers and, and uh, you know, politicians and foodies and book lovers and music lovers and all and on and on. And I sat down with that paragraph and I created what I thought would be the perfect show. So built the whole show in real time, like who could I get? Who? Whoop, how long the bumper is? Like literally down to the second, built the show, and then I had so much fun. I thought, oh, let's do it again. So I built three shows, took them in, 
Moses was like, ah, it's fantastic. Let's do it. And then didn't hear from him for about six months. Was about to take a different job. And then he called me up and he said, okay, we're going to do the show. It's going to be a weekly, not a daily. And um, I want you to come in and meet your co-host. And I was like, well, I have a co-host? It's okay. And he wouldn't tell me who it was. And I walked in and Conrad Black had just been released from prison. And he was standing in the waiting area. And I was, oh, 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 oh Conrad Black. Anyway, Moses introduced me. And he said, uh, okay, explain the show to Conrad. So I walked through the show. And, and then I started thinking, you know what, this could be interesting. I mean, first of all, I believe in second chances. He did his time. He conducted himself well from all accounts in, you know, in, uh, in, the, in the institution. And I thought, Conrad and I will agree on nothing, I think. And there's no way I'm his intellectual equal. I mean, he's so off the charts smart. I'm like, but maybe I can bring an emotional quotient, that EQ to a show, which might make for interesting <clears throat> viewing. And nothing like it anywhere. And I was also a co-producer. And so I thought, okay, let's let go for it. And we did. And it was fun. Until it wasn't. And, and so, <laughs> but I don't know, here. Andrew, you may be getting the impression that it's my way or the highway all the time, but I didn't have control of the edit at the end of the day. And, and Moses had different ideas and different opinions on things than I did. And so I finished up my contract and uh, and then left the show. Well, it's a very interesting experience. You know, your co-host, as you know, it turned out to be Lord Black. He of jail time, a convicted felon, holding a very particular set of political views. But I was curious whether you found him to be any different on air as opposed to off air during your time with Conrad Black. He's, you know what, he's a gracious man. He was always very generous to... Um, the audience to the the tech crew, and as I say, I you get a sense right right away if we were discussing the environment or gender issues or you know legacy in terms of you know because this was for Zoomers it was supposed to be for a sixty up it became fifty five up I think it's fifty up now but you know what do you do with your money I mean it was really interesting to be able to talk about subjects like that. And they were always really interesting discussions. But the edit on that show was a nightmare, especially if, because Moses always wanted 10 people around the table. Well, if you're doing an hour show with commercials, with, let's say it's 45 minutes, two co-hosts and, and you know, 10 people, does that mean minus, it means you're going to give four minutes per person, maybe, because you're also going to have interviews that you've done externally on and on and on. I'm getting too, you know, technical in terms of how to produce a show. But to my mind, when you're inviting people of stature to come and give you their time, you need to be respectful of that. And uh, so I, I found parts of that show uh, editorially and content-wise, you know, at the end of the day, just unworkable for me. And you know what? If you're in a situation that doesn't serve your soul, then don't stay. And so I didn't. Well, with your breadth of experiences, certainly you have to think about writing a book. And in 2016, you published an autobiography, Fearless as Possible, Under the Circumstances. 
Now, Denise, this project took you two years of disciplined writing. They asked for 500 pages, but you delivered them 1,200 pages. I guess you, I guess you learned about the art of editing. Oh, my God. Well, I, th- I think it needs one more edit. But no, th- well, thanks. Thanks, Andrew. I mean, the book did really well. Nobody sued me. I had some lawyers on board. That was good. But of course, when somebody says you should write a book, you know, your ego responds right away by saying, well, of course I should have a book. And then, but it's really, it's an ass-kicking lesson in humility, writing a book. I had to be very disciplined about it. I had to get up every day and go from, you know, nine to two, some of it research, some of it writing. And I had to block that time off for two solid years to get that book. And, you know, First, I thought they wanted celebrity stories, you know, who beat who playing pool with Keith Richards, like stuff. But the book was kind of willful. It had a mind of its own. It 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 didn't want it just to be about, you know, name dropping. It wanted to be about humanity. It wanted to be about uh, feminism. It wanted to be about using your powers for good, as we just uh, talked about. It wanted to be about female leadership in male-dominated industries. And so I started to write. And then it was like oh, putting together a rubrics cube. I just, the more I had, the harder it was to put it together. And so I went to see my editor, Janie Yoon, the, the fearless Janie Yoon. And I said, I'm just really having a hard time. She said, Denise, it's a memoir. Start at the beginning. I was like, oh, <laughs> okay. So it became a memoir. But I had to write really crazy things on my computer for the for a while. Uh, when I was trying to get that nine to two in every day, uh, my computer, my little sticky on my computer said, the ass will not kick itself. And then after that, it said, kindness, 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 because sometimes you want your book to be, you know, wreak revenge on people who forgot you. And then finally, it just said, faster, funnier, Donlin, because I had to get 1200 down to, well, eventually they gave me 700, but there are, and there are lots of celebrity stories in there, and I'm told it's wickedly funny. But if you want to skip the part about what the inner workings of the CRTC is like, I please, with my blessing. <laughs> Every reader has different interests in these. But I have to ask, was an autobiography at that point premature? With, with all due respect, why write an autobiography? You were only 60 at the time, and you have so much more experience to gain so much more, therefore, to write and share about, maybe a sequel. Because, Andrew, I'm a pensioner now. I was losing my nouns. I was about to lose the stories. <laughs> no, I've been asked to write a sequel, and yeah, there's more stories, and probably now with some experience I'd do different, but, you know, right now I just don't have time. I'm just really busy with nonprofit work and, and the public speaking that I do on occasion, um, which is usually about female leadership. Um, but yeah, there's probably another book down there uh, one day. Yeah. Now, Moses Neimer is this kind of mythical personality who can be polarizing. Everyone has an opinion on how he should be viewed as a broadcasting and media entrepreneur, but few have actually worked with him and even fewer know him as a person. You both have known and worked closely with him. What would the general public perhaps not know about Moses Neimer? Well, I think the general public knows a lot about Moses. I mean, you know, the the early days of, of the new music and city TV and much music are well documented. Um, he, there was some visionary leadership there. 
you know, the the fact that he felt like an underdog in the early days, and so he wanted to give opportunities to underdogs. Um, he wanted to make his own rules in terms of broadcasting, and he did. He's he's a tough boss to work for, uh, especially if you don't agree. But, you know, you think about people who are like that, you know, like who would today, Elon Musk or Steve Jobs or, or people who are very singular in terms of, you know, this is how I want it done. You know, they, they accomplish a lot, but, but they can be difficult to work for. I'm grateful to Moses for, you know, opportunities. And we've worked together enough at this point, I think. <laughs> well said. Well said. <laughs> now, Denise, you've produced many charitable events, but the one that caught my eye was in conjunction with former President Bill Clinton's 60th birthday party in 2007, which raised a whopping $21 million in just one evening for the Clinton Global Initiative. Please share any interactions you had with Bill Clinton. Oh, that was an amazing event. It was not publicized. I was working with Frank Justra, who is a uh, a very uh, an extraordinary um, investor and businessman in British Columbia, and my old boss Sam Feldman. Uh, yeah, I was the producer of the event. We and I'm trying to throw my brain back to it. It was we called it the Oscars without the staff. At one point, I mean, it was um, Kevin Spacey, Bill Clinton's 60th birthday, Hillary was there, Chelsea was there, Clarence Clemens, Tim McGraw, John Bon Jovi, Sarah McLaughlin, Josh Groban, Julie Black, Billy Crystal was her comedian. Anyway, it was insane. I'm at one point on my Blackberry, that was Blackberry Times, I got a note from Rick Mercer. He said, This place is on fire. And I said, I think it's my hair. Um, and it was a crazy story because it was right in the middle of TIFF at the same time. And the Virgin Music Festival was happening on Toronto Island. So, And we had seven layers of security in the house, from the Secret Service to the RCMP, the OPP, to the Toronto Police, the blah, 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 because there was politicians in the room, et cetera, et cetera. So it requires that. And suddenly on the walkie-talkie, I'm hearing... Well, I think it's going to rain. Might want to put the tarps up. And I'm like, this is an indoor event. I think we don't need the tarps. Who is this? And it was some guy running the Virgin Music Festival who there were so many events in town that all of the airspace for the walkie-talkies was full. So we had to run that whole event on two channels. And one was only the Secret Service. So you can imagine. It was unbelievable. Anyway, it was a great time. And yes, we did raise $21 million in one night. We did another one a few years later. It was only $18 million, or no, $16 million. But, you know, it was 2008. It was a bit of a recession going on. It wasn't me, Andrew. It was the power of the name of Bill Clinton and Frank Justra and Sam Feldman. We were, it it took a village and um, and it was, it really was amazing. What an experience. You won't Mm. get that again. No. Your husband, of course, is the noted singer-songwriter Murray McLaughlin. Now, I've had Paul Reiser on this podcast. He claims he can tell from 15 feet away whether an approaching fan wants to talk to him about Mad About You or Beverly Hills Cop or Stranger Things. My question, Denise, is from how far away can you identify if an approaching fan is making a beeline for Denise Donlan or for Murray McLaughlin? (laughs) That's a hilarious question. 
Um, I remember when I first started dating Murray, we were we were in the back of a cab, and I remember the cab driver sort of looking in the rearview mirror and going, "Oh, I'm so excited to have you in my cab." And we were new, right? And we were looking at each other, going, "See me new or me?" Um, it's usually Murray. That's good. <laughs> I want to thank you for all your time. You've been great. Before we do close, I do want to ask Denise, what are you working on now? And what are you working on next? Oh, well, right now I've got a Warchild Gala uh, that I'm helping. I'm on the board of Warchild Canada that's coming up. I'm working at uh, on the board of Soul Pepper, Music Council, the Junos, et cetera, et cetera. Coming up next, oh, so there's a big project that will be announced eventually. It's called the Toronto Music Experience. It's it's like a museum, but it's not, you know, a dusty old place with artifacts and, and Getty Lee's jeans, although I'm pretty sure he'd give me his jeans if I asked him. But it's, uh, it's a, a digital, it celebrates Toronto's extraordinary musical history, and uh, hopefully uh, celebrates emerging artists as well. We've got so much to celebrate in your Toronto. Canadians and Toronto and specifically really does. We, we punch above our weight in terms of artists that have come up, as I mentioned earlier, uh, to the artists that are reigning now from, you know, Drake and Bieber and, uh, or sorry, Drake and The Weeknd and Alessia Les- uh, Carr and Jesse Reyes, etc. So we need a place. I mean, Toronto doesn't have anywhere that uh, celebrates Canada's music history, in Toronto and specifically. I mean, Cleveland, Seattle, they're all over the place. We need one. So we'll be in fundraising mode any day now, and um, fingers and toes crossed, uh, we can get this going. Excellent. Very exciting. Are you on social media? Where can we best follow you, and where can uh, fans uh, interact with you? I'm on Twitter at Donlin. I'm on Instagram. I'm on Facebook. I don't post a ton because I'm not really selling a thing. <laughs> but it is fun to interact with people for sure. So yeah, find me on the on the socials. Excellent. That's great. A real pleasure meeting you, getting to know you, hearing your stories, and uh, I want to wish you continued success. Oh, thanks, Andrew. And the same to you with your hundred now hundred and seventy six interview podcast power on my friend thank you denise it's been my pleasure take care and to the listeners on behalf of denise donlin i'm andrew applebaum saying thanks for listening to this episode of the toronto legends podcast What happens when we play outside? We become healthier, both mentally and physically. We become more creative and more focused. We connect with nature, each other, and ourselves. Let's Take This Outside, a new podcast hosted by me, Marianne Iveson, an aspiring outdoor athlete and nature lover. I speak to athletes, outdoor professionals, and scientists about their connection to nature, how it affects their performance and everyday life. Let's Take This Outside, available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Podcasts, and at letstakethisoutside.ca. The Podcast Super Friends is a monthly meeting of five podcast producers. Hi, I'm Catherine O'Brien from Branch Out Programs in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. 
I'm John Gay from Jagged Detroit Podcasts. I'm Matt Kundal from the Sound Off Podcast Network. I'm David Yes from Pod 617, the Boston Podcast Network. And I'm Johnny Peterson from Straight Up Podcasts. Together, they form the Podcast Super Friends, an alliance of podcast masterminds sharing best practices, insights, and discussions to help make you a better podcaster. Follow or subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or at soundoff.network.